Weirdo Weirdo Bookworms Unite! Unite. Do your reading tastes range from dystopian sci-fi to middle-grade fantasy? Dark psychological thrillers to gory body horror? From YA paranormal swords and sorcery? Extraterrestrials? Murder? Mayhem! And beyond! Then we want to share our love of reading with you! Welcome home. Hey, genre junkies, it's Sandra. And this is Scott. Welcome, welcome to an interview episode and review. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and say right now that uh, normally Sandra and I don't talk about books before we record our episode, but this one warranted some conversation ahead of time. Just just a little bit. Just, just a, a little, little bit. bit. Um, and that is because we <laughs> are beyond lucky. I mean... Gosh, we're always so lucky for the amazing people that come on our show and talk to us and the authors um, who share with us their experience. And sometimes we're kind of blown away by, like, <laughs> frankly, the the fame of the people. And um, not that that's what matters, but it's like, wow, Grady, Hendri- Grady Hendrix was here on our, on our show. Very exciting. Um, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. I mean, like I said, I don't mean to sound ungrateful because everybody's a big deal. But there's something about, you know, an author whose work you've been reading and absorbing for a really long time. And you know that so many other people um, love and admire their work. And then you get the incredibly lucky opportunity to get to talk to them. And you kind of feel like you're representing all of the fans when you do that, you know? So it feels like really it feels big. I mean, not to give him too big of a head or anything. Oh, God knows. He already has one. <laughs> He's an incredibly wonderful, humble person. But he has some really funny persona things like on his website and biographies where he um, makes himself sound like some sort of a, a, a godlike figure. And it's it's just wonderful. Because once you know his work and his humor, you just so appreciate that. So, yeah, we had Grady Hendrix on the show. So we're going to be doing kind of our standard thing. which is um, spoiler-free, talking about his new novel, The Final Girl Support Group, and then talking to him, which I don't think there's any spoilers in this interview. Nope. And then we'll come back and we will talk spoilers. Um, I can already just tell you right off the bat, I I really hope you don't just jump to the spoiler section. I really want people to read this book. Yeah. um, Yes. Read it. Real um, good. So we're going to try to sell you that in a minute. But um, before that, um, I'm Sandra. I'm Scott. And we are the Genre Junkies. So let's talk a little a little round table, something to share with the class. Um, I could start. Uh, you can start. We might have the same thing. Well, maybe not. One thing I really wanted to share with my friends here at the Genre Junkies table, is um, over on Spooky Slumber Party, we recently reviewed part one of Fear Street. And, oh my gosh, what a fun kind of thing to happen in life right now that the Fear Street books by Arl Stein that meant so much to me and shaped me 
so so much all all of Arlstein's books Goosebumps First Street but um that that is now transcended because people who grew up with his books are now the people making movies and making content and we talk about um we're gonna eventually talk about uh, all three of the films but we talk about the first one of course because that was the only one out at the time of recording and I had so much fun I had so much fun watching that movie I had so much fun talking to the the ghouls about it over on our show and um you know it's one of those things where you don't want people to maybe mess up something that feels nostalgic to you um was something that a lot of people struggle with but i really encourage people to see this film because it's just kind of a wonderful little little love letter to fear street without like exploiting anything about fear street it's just very fun yes it's you know it it's it is creative in a lot of ways, but also very nostalgic. And, you know, I I didn't go into it, you know, taking it incredibly seriously. Right. And I had a lot of fun. A yeah. lot of fun. Um, what what were you gonna share? Loki though. Loki though. Wow. <sighs> I mean Wow. For, so okay. Loki is incredibly written, very fun, exciting. As Sandra has said, I don't know how they keep making their shows better and better. I don't get it. Um, you know, there are some things that uh, you know, there 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 are some representation things that I think it has fallen back on after episode five that you know kind of disappoints me a little bit. Interesting. Um, uh, quick spoiler: you can jump thirty seconds if you want. There was definitely some indication that Loki was gender fluid. Well, um, definitely bisexual. Definitely that. And that still yeah. stands. Yeah. Uh, the gender fluidity has kind of fallen off, especially in, you know, when you talk about the fact that Sylvie is the only female Loki that they've ever seen. That kind of takes the gender fluidity, fluidity out of it. But, um, you know, that might just be a uh, an expectation uh, versus intention right and there could be a little bit of like you know there's only so much they can kind of really put into the story Mm -hmm. because loki as a as a character in so many iterations already has a gender fluidity so um i think it's kind of like if you're into loki you kind of know that i don't know you know what i mean like that's not like a secret yeah um if for loki fans uh but i really appreciated as an entity of disney of marvel um putting out there straight up as they're doing now with loki and other characters that this character is bisexual this character is pansexual this character is lesbian and um and and i i don't i i don't want that to i want to make sure that even though we're critiquing that that we're all still very appreciative of you know what I mean, and not yeah. underselling that. I mean, um, I'm I'm a big fan of Alex Hirsch, who created uh, who created Gravity Falls. Wait, we talked about your fans of high school, <laughs> and uh, you know, if you follow him on Twitter, he's talked about some of the difficulties he's run into with Disney. Just you know, what was that six years ago? Right, they've they've come a long way, and they really have come a long way since then. And there's a lot of work to be done. And you know, God knows, I'm not going to defend uh, Disney's corporate, <laughs> but uh, we're huge Disney fans, but we're not we're not we're not that naive. <laughs> we can, yeah, 
Uh, we can keep pushing and still expecting more while still, I, I feel, being appreciative of yeah, what we got the 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 steps that have been made. Yeah, I agree. It's um very, it's all very encouraging, and also we are huge fans of some of the changes uh, for the cast members that have gone on, so they can really be individuals and live their truths too. Yeah. Love that. Hey, you know what? We're all making progress, and that's actually a great segue. <laughs> This book, <laughs> it actually really is for the Final Girls Support Group by um, Grady Hendrix. And we'll get into the progress and the work that I feel Grady Hendrix is doing. Um, but first and foremost, let me just tell you about the novel, shall I? Lost my place. Lynette Tarkington is a real-life final girl who survived a massacre. For more than a decade, she's been meeting with five other final girls and their therapist in a support group for those who survived the unthinkable, working to put their lives back together. Then one woman misses a meeting, and their worst fears are realized. Someone knows about the group and is determined to rip their lives apart again, piece by piece. But the thing about final girls is that no matter how bad the odds, how dark the night, how sharp the knife, they will never, ever give up. Um, you really, I mean, hi, mic drop. You don't really need to say anything more <laughs> after after that. So I, I don't think anybody here is unfamiliar with the concept of a final girl. But um, basically, in Grady's world he's created here, it's this... <laughs> almost alternative universe is the way I think of it, where all of those slashers, these movies from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it was all real. These all really happened. They did make film franchises out of most of them. And not all of the film not all of the films were based on true stories, but Exactly. Certainly the first two. Yeah. And um at least five of them <laughs> were definitely real. And um this is kind of like we're dealing with the fallout um, and also the next adventure these group of women find themselves in. So I kind of teased this a little bit, but I have to say this book is nothing short of an obsession for me. Absolute obsession. Um, I shall be so bold as to say this is one of my favorite books of the year. Maybe it will end up being my favorite book of the year. It's hard to say, um, but it's really really high up there um another great outing from a fantastic author it's really important to point out and was really special to me that you don't need to have seen all of these films or really frankly any of them there is enough pop culture just uh knowledge through osmosis <laughs> uh and and it is original enough and explains what happened enough that it's really fun if you know it, but it's not necessary. And it's still still fun if you don't. So um, kind of on that uh, same idea, that makes me think of the, um, you know, kind of the audience in general. And um, I, I can definitely say that this book is is got mass appeal. Boom. Mass yeah. appeal. No question. Yeah. Um, I think you will get more and more out of it the more you know about horror movies um, because there's wonderful Easter eggs. There's wonderful Easter eggs um, in this with every character's name and sometimes the killer's name and then of course the actual you know quote-unquote cases that happened um, and you'll kind of understand that like the changes that, that Grady made. So one of my favorite things about this book, and I we talk about this in the interview with him, is 
there's a cognitive dissonance that comes with being a horror scholar, which I, I consider myself a horror scholar, or at least someone who studies horror scholarship. I, I don't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's a there's a cognitive dissonance. There's sometimes where you know things aren't okay, mm-hmm. but that you still like them anyway. <laughs> and that's something that happens in a lot of fandoms, uh, but especially... You know, we we talk about it a lot in the horror world. Like we know in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is one of my favorites, there's some problematic stuff. There's some ways you can read um, Leatherface that's, you know, kind of disparaging towards trans people. Mm -hmm. There's um, girls without much clothing on, you know, kind of being sexualized while they're being killed. Sure. Like there's all that. As as awesome as it is that it has, uh, you know, someone disabled and there's some representation there. He's an absolute annoying. God, I hate Franklin. Oh, it's a cult show callback. Um, But you know what I mean? But it's like, I also still absolutely love, love, love Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even though there's stuff about it that I can't defend because I have a problem with it too, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's cognitive dissonance in a nutshell. And so it's kind, of, it's kind of like he is taking these things about it, like that no final girls are people of color, that they're all able-bodied, that they're all hetero, and being like, nah, like that fit into a very dated ideal of what the American girl next door had to be to be a final girl and so it's really nice to see him like he pays homage he has the respect and the love but he's gonna make the final girl better and more lovable yeah and also you know going through experiences like that is uh would be incredibly is incredibly traumatizing oh yeah you don't just you know come out the other side like sydney oh i'm just going to college and now my bye. girl sydney did carry some trauma excuse uh, me certainly you're right yes, I, yes you're right you're but, right but yes i know what you mean though where it's like nobody's just going to act like everything's fine like maybe <laughs> you need to be in years and years of therapy and have a support group and have um agoraphobia and have mistrust issues and um i'm trying to think of like the word uh kind of like responsibility issues a perfect example lynette and fine now i know we'll talk more about that in the uh in the spoiler section but i know fine is your favorite character fine is my favorite character without a doubt i would die for fine I would die for fine. Fine is fine is perfect. So not only is this book self-aware and um, holds a great mirror up to society in so many ways, it is also incredibly funny. It is lol funny. It is smile and chortle funny. It is all the funny. Uh, it's funny just it, in its quick writing and in its referential humor as well. Uh, you you will absolutely have a laugh. You will you will laugh so hard. All of Grady's books are very funny um because he's a very funny dude and i don't think you can turn that off (laughs) with what you write and i want to say something about this uh kind of kind of to preface uh trigger warnings and that sort of thing for myself um i found this book to just be very fun from start to finish it's definitely scary it's thrilling um but there's i didn't find anything that that was particularly triggering to me uh however i am a cisgendered male 
And this definitely has themes around um, violence towards women. And I was wondering how how you felt, how, how I was wondering in the way that it's written, how you feel that that may be uh, a problem or if you felt that it was handled in a way that just ke- still keeps it as lighthearted as it felt to me. Right. Well, there, um, I think that's a really good point. And first of all, I do agree for uh, this book was um, equal parts light hearted and also poignant for me personally. Um, there is a fascination in our media and in our cinema with um, dead women's bodies <laughs> and seeing women be victimized and seeing women, uh, you know, kind of exploited through violence and through their death. Um, that is a big thing that is something to think about in our society. And as somebody who, you know, is a is a purveyor of that sort of media, it does give you things to think about. And I think that's kind of the a message that Grady is talking about here. There's um a great quote in this book uh, I highlighted says, men don't have to pay attention the way we do. Men die because they make mistakes. Women, we die because we're female. Um, and I think that's a really perfect way to look at it is there's just you can't be too safe. You can't be too cautious. We've talked about this on the show before with my favorite murder, you know, fuck politeness. (laughs) Like, you know, there's just those things you have to do as a female to, to kind of break conditioning of, Oh, be nice. Oh, you know, just, Oh, just be sweet, be polite or, you know, anything like that. And it, it just comes more inherently to us that we have to be on our guard more. Um, so I don't know if it's triggering so much. I mean, maybe like, yeah, if you're, um, I, I guess, consider yourself warned, like that this is going to deal with women being victimized because they are women. Yeah. One thing I really wanted to reiterate is, again, this is a wonderful, wonderful, in my opinion, love letter to horror and um, a great look at where we've been and where we can go and how we can evolve the genre to um, to keep getting better and more enjoyable for our current times. And that's how things always evolve. Things always evolve over time. There's always a bar and there's always, you know, ways that we rise up to it. And that's a good thing. A story should evolve. Genre should evolve evolved there's a point in this interview where grady talks about how you know he wants to hear things that are new you know even though he loves horror he wants new stories and it's kind of the idea of that right of like this is where we've been so let's keep going forward and and keep making things better and also um in the words of the unbreakable kimmy schmidt females are strong as hell like um there is a wonderful upliftingness to this book as well yeah well I cannot wait to open up a can of worms and start spoiling this book. But first, let's get into that wonderful interview with Grady Hendrix. Hey, Bookworm Buddy, don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review. And while you're at it, find us on Instagram at Genre Junkies. All right, with us today, author of The Final Girls Support Group, Grady Hendrix. Hello. Hi. Hey, y'all. How's it going? Good. Welcome. Welcome. Um, so you are no stranger to podcasting. What do you mean? Didn't you used to have a podcast? It's fantastic. Oh, yes, I did. Oh, yeah. No, thank you. I, You know, that podcast is such a frustration of mine. I started doing it during the pandemic, and I was like, 
And so instead of doing sort of a typical author event, when I go out on do book tours, I usually do more like a one person show. And so I, um, I was putting together all the research for the, for the Southern book club's guide to slaying vampire show and doing all this. And then we, we pandemic. And so no show. So I used all that research to make the podcast and it was so much fun. Like two of those episodes are two of my favorite things I've ever made. And, um, but it was so much work, dude. No one told me how hard it was going to be. Like podcasts really eat your life. And I had to stop doing it after like six episodes because I just couldn't spend that kind of time on it anymore. And so I've always wanted to restart it. And it's such a frustration for me. So yeah, yeah. I mean, thanks for bringing up a really sore subject. <laughs> I'm going to cry. Perfect. I really just wanted to start off by twisting the knife. That was kind of my Thank you. My like goal. my mother starts every conversation. <laughs> Um, well, I'm glad that, you know, it's easier when someone else does all the producing and you just get to do yeah. the talking. That's how I feel over here at John and Junkies. I know that's, yeah. I, yeah. And I love audio editing and stuff, but it just eats up so much. time. And also like doing these, writing the scripts. Oh my God. It took for, took me like five weeks one time to write like a script for this thing. It was so hard. Right. Wow. It's a lot involved. I'm and- such a, I'm such a whiner. No, <laughs> I'm listening. No, you're a busy. Like, you're a busy writer. You're you're already writing. Yes, yeah, so you think writing you're... the script would be easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you are the beautiful, beautiful Grady Hendrix, it's hard. It is. It is. Well, that's why I wanted to do a podcast because, and why I appreciate doing your podcast because I feel like when people see my face, they get so uncomfortable because uh, they can't help but start comparing themselves to me and coming up short, just just from a purely looks point of view. Right, staring into divinity, it will do that. Yeah, yeah. So I and it's, appreciate it's it. tough because because I treat everyone like an equal, <laughs> even though they're not. I treat them like an equal. Which is part of my sort of magnanimous nature. And so it makes me really uncomfortable when they're sort of like, you know, really bowing and scraping and trying to keep their head lower than mine. <laughs> he just wants to be a normal guy, everybody. I love yeah. it. It's well, hard. It's hard. We'll try to keep you grounded today. Yeah, How's we'll that sound? <laughs> Thank you. I really, I really appreciate Well, you're doing a good job of it right from the beginning by bringing up the painful, painful podcast. All right. Perfect. We're doing good then. We're doing good. I hope y'all, we hear that you once said some really hurtful things to your sister. <laughs> Why? <laughs> we're actually, we're going to bring out your sister right now. That'd be cool. <laughs> Surprise. Um, <laughs> Surprise guest. Your <laughs> alienated sister you haven't spoken to in 20 years. <laughs> Here she is. <laughs> oh, 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 I love it. Oh, the wild world of podcasting. Um, <laughs> well, speaking of humble beginnings, we always like to ask our authors here, what is the first story you remember writing? First story I remember writing. I th- Oh, what it was was in high school – we had to do this assignment that I thought was really dumb. Like, I liked English a lot. And it gave me a chance to write. We had to do this assignment. It was like, write a poem. I was like, ugh. I, I didn't want to write a stupid poem. And, you know, and it's like, and like we, the poems we had to read for it were just really banal, wow. treacly garbage mm-hmm. uh, by a bunch of poets like Walt Whitman and jo- jokers like that. <laughs> and so I, I wrote a poem about... um. And I don't know if this is where are y'all located in the country. We're in Northern California. Okay, so so y'all are in driving 
areas. So when you drive on the highway and you see those black plastic garbage bags just sort of sitting on the side of the road, mm. I was obsessed with those. Like, what's in those? Like, body parts, people, kittens, garbage? <laughs> so I wrote a poem about those black plastic garbage bags on the side of the road. And I can't remember what was in them in the poem, but it was something unsavory. Mm. And my English teacher was this elderly man named Blackburn Hughes, who many years later would actually, actually not that many years later, would actually die while teaching class. Um, everyone thought he was napping in the middle of class and no! realized he was dead. And he was this like, you know, he wore sweater vests and bow ties and very proper and, and boring. And he gave me an A plus on it. And I was like, and really analyzed it in depth and gave me a lot of feedback. And I was like, wow, okay, like I wrote something I wanted to do that was way off the lesson plan and he engaged with it. Okay, this isn't going to encourage me to, to do this more, which turned out to be a mistake in some instances. But. <laughs> <laughs> wow, and what a great name too for an English teacher. Yeah, yeah that's Blackburn a great, Hughes. That's yeah. like a great horror character name too. Yeah, he was actually a dude, you know, for all his sort of like oldness and weirdness he is actually a really good guy it's just like you know i love it so and and he was able to go out traumatizing an entire classroom of 10th graders but that's what which really matters. I always i think that's yeah style matters <laughs> you gotta have the last word you know i appreciate that yep so you um you've written uh, a book about uh horror history and you come uh with a lot of knowledge to your books. How how do you go about your your writing process and what's your favorite part of it? Well, I mean, I love I love kind of all of it. I mean, I love the research part and I can get caught in that for a really long time. I was a reporter for a while and or a journalist really. And so um I love doing research because it gives me an excuse to call people I wouldn't call otherwise and ask questions and find things out. So I love doing that. But I also love the routine of writing, just the every day you get up, you come, you sit down, you write, you go home, you get up, you come down, and the focus of it and all that. I really like going out on the road and, and meeting people and talking to them and stuff. So I, I sort of lucked into a job that that fulfills all my needs. Um, so yeah. That's uh that's that's what I really love. And the research is so much fun to do. Do you have one of those like monastic offices where you write in a tomb like silence <laughs> or do you have like loud music and like what's what's your writing setup look like? So I write in an office and there's a couple of things to it. So I'm in a I'm in a rental space. So there's like a driving school on one side of me, these people who do medical billing on the other, there's a passport place across the hall. Those are all true horror and, uh, right there. Exactly. Um and I have way too many books in here, but I use lots of books. This is my job. Right. And over my desk, I have my wall of crazy, which is sort of all these images I put up for the book I'm writing. And it's nice to see the juxtapositions and they kind of like suggest things to me and yeah. all that and maps of the place I'm writing about and stuff like that. And then, yeah, I don't like music or anything while I write. I, I really don't like, I don't drink. I don't do any, I just write. I mean, it's very boring. Um, and, and I try to usually hit... 3,000 words a day on a so-so day and 5,000 words a day on a good day. And I keep a diary, like a logbook, where I record that every day and get mad at myself when I don't do it. And oh. yeah, that is, that is, I really, I, I love this little prison cell. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool, though. I mean, it's like, it's a craft. You're crafting. Yeah, this is my job. I mean, you know, I don't have a backup plan. If this writing thing doesn't work out, I don't have... 
another skill set. Like I didn't also go to law school. But but you did write a cookbook, so I mean, you know, you got some skills. Well, that was all my wife's fault. So she's the chef. I just sort of helped her out with putting that thing in in some kind of structure. But um <laughs> Yeah, so I guess, and you know, the few times I've worked in the restaurant has, have been disastrous. So I don't, I don't oh. think there's a career. I don't think there's a backup plan there. That's not a good. Okay, that one's out. That one's out. That's fine. Maybe the driver. Yeah, I mean, you know, will have you. Yeah, uh, I don't. I think they might have gone out of business during the pandemic. I don't oh. know. They haven't. The guy who runs it hasn't been in there in a really long time. Oh no! His nails kind of piling up. Oh shit! Um, so I know. Well, you know, I'm sure he's okay. <laughs> I'm sure everything's fine. Um, Scott had kind of mentioned research. And one thing that I um, I really like is your blog over on Tor's website. I think it's very good. And um, I appreciate, oh, yeah, I appreciate um, where you talk about horror and kind of horror scholarship, because that's my thing of, of the genre junkies. If you don't know us, I'm the horror person i'm the horror like one that's my thing scott's more okay. sci-fi and then we overlap on okay. fantasy so um i appreciate how much you've put into researching and watching so many sometimes very bad movies <laughs> and so it's like yeah, kind of see where often, we need to change yeah yeah reading very awful books sometimes but yes. you know it's always like educational. Like yeah. even a bad movie's got something to say. Even a bad book is kind of fascinating to figure out what's going on there, you know? Yes, yes. Um, I just read this book because I put together the show for Final Girls and uh, I read the, so I'm reading a lot of murder books and I picked up this book called On My Honor from late 80s by a guy named Malachi Black and I thought it was going to be like a Boy Scout slasher. It's got oh like my a God, I've Scout read that book. Yeah, and you think, and there's all this talk by the scoutmaster, and he's like bringing the boys into his tent at night, and they get blackouts, and they don't remember what happened, and he's like talking about grooming them, and you're like, oh no, it's a pedophile book, and then you discover that he's a hitman yeah. who's hypnotizing the Boy Scouts into murdering people for him, and you're like, yes, <laughs> book Nirvana achieved. Um, it's actually a really well-written book. Yeah. The problem with it is it's incredibly padded. Yeah. There's I don't know if you remember the part where the Boy Scout pushes the guy off in front of the commuter train, yes. but like there are 12 pages about the train station before he kills like the history of it and what it looks like. It's just like a gruesomely, gruesomely padded book, which, you know, in the 80s, big books, fatter books sold better, you know, because of Stephen King. Everyone associated that with King. Right. So, you know, I'm sure this guy's editor was like, put in more words. <laughs> just fill it with words. They'll never know. Exactly. Oh, um, so well, I, I've never met anyone who's read that book. So oh this my is a big God. day for me. Yeah, that I, gosh, that's one of those weird things it's I read. It's set in like Chicago too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I kind of want to reread that now. You know, it's like that moment where something just clicks open in your brain and you're like, oh, I, I buried that. Oh yeah, totally. Well, a lot of my books are set in sort of the nineties or the eighties. Yeah. I mean, eras I, I lived through. But whenever I'm doing the research for them, I'm always like, oh, my God, I had totally forgotten about Frugenglagen or something, you know. And like then I remember all these associations with it. I'm like, how did I forget that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so that's so good. I feel all pumped up. I'm all excited now thinking about that. Um, so, yeah. So this book, so the Final Girl Support Group, that takes well, I don't want to say it takes place, but it has a lot of um callbacks to the 70s 80s and 90s and so you're kind of oh, doing yeah. that time travel thing 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that was one of the things, sort of working out the years and the ages and the franchise, that was really a pain. Like, mm-hmm. I hate figuring out that time stuff, but you kind of have to do it. Right. It's like figuring out travel time, because this book's basically one big chase. And it's like, oh, can they actually get there in three hours? Oh, my God, they can get there in 45 minutes. That's way too soon. Like, <laughs> you know, it's really that required a lot of adjustment. Yeah. And I, I think if you've read the book, we know exactly kind of what parts you're talking about, where it's like, oh, damn, it's that close, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, again, I, I appreciate your research and I appreciate how with your horror books, especially with this one, we're looking to the past and, you know, there's kind of that little bit of like, we can admire it and we can love a lot of things from the horror past, but we can also acknowledge the, the problematic stuff and, and try to move forward and try to, um, to evolve our beloved genre a bit. Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of the things with this book is sort of trying to figure out like what, would these final girls be like in real life? And one of the things that always bugged me was there was never a black final girl. Like there no. just wasn't one. Yeah. And and so I was like, you know, but of course there was. Yeah. She just got whitewashed for the film version. Yeah. You know, and like, and and I was always like, you know, if you're a final girl and you go through all this stuff, you will very likely end up in a wheelchair. So of course I need a final girl who uses a wheelchair. Love it. Um, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that scenario becomes a lot more interesting to me with a sort of Latinx character in it as the final girl. Like, yes. they're redneck, all-American cannibal hillbillies, and they're trying to kill someone, you know, who's Latinx. Like, yeah. that makes more sense to me. So it really was just sort of tweaking those things into more interesting forms yeah. and, and, and playing with those tropes and doing something different with them. Right. No, I, I super appreciate that. And too, and Danny, Danny being gay, too. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's one of those things that people always sort of, I mean, do you remember that schoolyard thing that like when we were kids, Jamie Lee Curtis is really was born a boy. Yes, and, I remember you know, and I mean, that. Yeah. And I was just, and so I was like, well, of course, you know, six women, probably one of them will be gay. Like, yes. you know, like it, so it was just stuff that just, just taking it, applying the reality principle a little bit. Yeah. Um, I have to admit too, as an as a little bit of an Easter egg, Marilyn is my favorite. Um, oh. I'm, a, I'm a Texas Chainsaw fan myself, and I loved that with the Gunners. I, I love all the little Easter eggs that you put in there for. People. Oh, thanks. It's one of those if yeah, you well, know, you know. <laughs> yeah, and like I don't think you even need to know horror movies to read the book. Like I feel like a no. lot of this stuff is entered the pop cultural collective and kind of a Final Girl, a summer camp slasher, that kind of thing. Yes, but. Horror fans love going deep. And so there is not a single name in this book that doesn't appear in a horror movie, in a slasher. Um, Google any name from this book and you will go down a rabbit hole. (laughs) Guaranteed. I love that. And I just, I really, um, I fell in love with all of these final girls, all of these ladies and how um, flawed they were. I think it's, um, I I think it's it's a really nice, love letter when you can talk about how much you admire a genre but also talk about well this is where we should go with it this is where we should evolve with this you know i really appreciate that oh thanks yeah well i mean you know it's also like these books are written in the modern world and i feel like i don't just want to play with someone else's toys i want to do something new (laughs) yeah exactly um in in relation to doing something new i I agree um as someone who has not seen all of these films you don't need to be uh really knowledgeable about the the inspirations for their stories but how did you go about um like what was your process to go about 
making changing these stories and kind of making them your own did you start with the original and rewrite it and then write that into the story how did that work yeah, I mean, that was really it. I mean, it was it was like sort of taking the original and boiling it down to its most iconic things. You know, it's like like the Friday the 13th movies, you know, there's tons of summer camp slashers out there yeah. and they boil down to it's a sort of weird mutant dude in the woods killing campers one by one. You know, mm-hmm. the redneck, the redneck mutant cannibal family, like it boils down to some essentials, you know. And so I really just wanted to keep them iconic and, and almost like campfire tales. Yes. No, that that makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of like we're almost living in this like this universe where all of these awful slasher things. It, it was all true. It all came true. Um uh, yeah, kind of exactly. Horrid. Somehow even worse than our yeah. own reality. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, I know. Yeah. Um, well, just no pandemic. Like, this book was originally set in the modern day, and I actually bumped it back to 2010 because of the pandemic. Because I'm like, I can't write a book set in 2020 if the pandemic's going on. And I didn't want to set it in like 2018 or 2019 because to me, that's like those movies that used to come out where it was like, la la la, the movie's ending. I'm going to go, okay, bye honey. I'm going into work at the World Trade Center and then the screen <gasps> yeah. would go black and it'd be like 7 a.m. September yeah. 11th. Right. One, you're like, oh no, they're all going to die. And like, if this book took place right before the pandemic, people would be like, it's a happy ending, but it's not. Right. So, it changes the I, whole tone of it. Yeah. Yeah, I had to just push it way back. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, we know you were you were busy during the height of the shutdown and everything. Did you um did you use that time to get a lot of like writing and creative stuff done, or how did you spend a lot of those quarantine hours? Yeah, I mean, my office is about three blocks from my house, so there was no one else in the building. And so every day I'd get up, I'd walk the three blocks and I'd put in a day writing. And it was really nice to hang on to that routine. It really, we live in a 700 square foot, one bedroom apartment. My wife and I would have murdered each other. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, 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 the killers inside the house with you, what get out. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, it was really nice. And, you know, I, I, did a whole rewrite on this book and really rewrote the ending, um, which was really helpful. I, I always knew what the last two paragraphs were, but I hadn't really gotten there in a satisfying way. And so I went down to South Carolina last August because my mom got really sick and I went down to take care of her for a few weeks. Yeah. And um, and I was re- and I sort of was like, oh, I know how to end the book. And so as I was sort of like, as that second wave of the pandemic was really rampaging, just killing thousands of people, I was sitting there in my mom's little spare bedroom writing Lynette from being this woman who was trapped inside her house who could not go outside because it was too dangerous and who regarded every other human being as a potential source of of murder Um, and who, when she did go outside, it takes an enormous amount of planning. And that was sort of our lives in 2020. And to write her from that to a point where she's unstuck and can actually walk away from that and and get to a better place was really, really a good thing for me to be doing, psychologically speaking, during the pandemic. Mm. Um, That's cool. And then the other thing that was really lucky for me is I was also writing another book that's coming out this fall called um, These Fists Break Bricks, <laughs> which is um, it's about uh, kung fu movies coming to America. It's a nonfiction book, and it's got a lot of art in it. It's sort of like paperbacks from hell, but for kung fu movies in the 70s and 80s, and a um, ton of art. But 
I worked with this researcher, Chris Bajali, and he's really, really great. And and we just dug up so much stuff. And so much of that story is about about black martial arts and 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 Latinx martial arts. And you know, these were movies that came to America and became hugely popular not just because they starred non-white characters that that a lot of these audiences could identify with because it wasn't just the white guy again, Mm -hmm. but also a lot of these books, a lot of these movies were about, you know, a kid who's poor, who has nothing, and with his bare hands, he stands up to some kind of power structure that's corrupt and, and, and stops it. And these movies were enormously inspiring to kids in living in cities where they'd basically been abandoned and sort of like, you know, written off as, as they were going to do nothing but grow up to live in poverty. And to see these movies, they a lot of they really changed a lot of these kids' lives. And so I'm working on this book that really was about you know, black martial arts and 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 these in these black and Latin audiences really embracing these movies and then making their own. And I was doing that sort of during the Black Lives Matters protests. And it was like it was really nice for me in a way to I write. You know, that's what I do. I write and I go into history. And it was nice for me to be able to engage from a point of view where I could actually sort of do something slightly useful, you know, and and I was doing a lot of interviews with these martial artists and stuff and, you know, um uh uh, Muhammad Sanders, uh, Steve Muhammad, uh, who'd founded the Black Karate Federation mm-hmm. and all this. So it was really, it was, it was a weird year where there were a lot of things I was writing that were having parallels in the real world. Um, because apparently the whole world is just a dream I'm having <laughs> and everyone better hope I not, I don't wake up. <laughs> You're more powerful than we know. Yeah. Uh, more beautiful and more powerful. <laughs> That's really cool, though, when you can kind of relate on a microcosm, macrocosm scale and and contribute how you can. I think that's the best we can all do is contribute how we can to help. Yeah. And it's also one of those things where one thing I really love about writing books is you wind up focusing really intensely on something for a long period of time. And so you start to see the world through the book. It's kind of like if you buy a Volvo, you're suddenly like, everyone's got a Volvo. You suddenly start noticing all the Volvos. Yes, yeah. And um, yeah, and so it's like, and these weird things happen. Like I wrote My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is about, you know, um, those high school friendships that mean so much. They are life and death in high school. And then high school ends and you don't speak to those people again sometimes. And like you just lose track of them. And and while I was wrapping that book up, my best friend in high school just out of the I hadn't talked to him in 15 years. He just called me out of the blue and we reconnected and I was able to go see him and we really like stay in touch now. And it was just a really nice thing to happen. Um, you know, it's just these weird things. You you're the book becomes kind of your life. It's it's very weird. Yeah. Oh, I'm so I'm so glad you mentioned that book. Um, not only is it a wonderful book and I I really connected to it for all those kind of reasons you're saying but um i had one of the special well, i have one of the special editions of that book your books always look so cool too by the way oh thanks they, they always look just rad they look super rad yeah that is the that is the art directors i have you know i do my best but often it's just the the luck of the draw and i wind up with really really talented art directors <laughs> well considering paperbacks from hell and so much you've done we would really like to ask you, though, what's kind of an obscure book that you love to recommend to people? Oh, um, well, there's there's two I really like to recommend. And one is almost anything by Michael McDowell, but especially his book, The Elementals. Um, 
he wrote a book called The Blackwater Saga. That's really six books that came out once um uh once a month over the course of like a year. And it's pretty or no, every other month. And it's amazing. Blackwater Saga is the 100 years of solitude of <laughs> 80s horror fiction. But but if you are ready to commit to six books, I get it. And his book, The Elementals, is amazing. And McDowell was a, was a gay writer who's and he's from the South, and he's really become forgotten. I think people know him best these days. He wrote the screenplay for Beetlejuice and for The Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, okay. And, yeah. yeah. And his stuff is just dead on amazing. I, I just reread The Elementals to write an introduction to it, uh, to a version of it coming out, I think, in, in Poland. Oh. And um, I was so jealous. I was like, he's such a good writer. And then the other one I really like to recommend, and it, it can go either way, but if, if you really like horror, there's a writer named Elizabeth Ingstrom who wrote a book called When Darkness Loves Us, and it was published in the 80s, and it's really two novellas that kind of were published in one volume. And the first one's called When Darkness Loves Us, and it's about underground incest monsters, mm-hmm. and it's a harrowing book. And then the back novella is this book called Beauty Is, and it's about this woman who uh, whose mother was a faith healer, mm-hmm. and it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And so it's these two, this sort of one-two punch, like one to the gut and one to the heart, and it's really phenomenal. Ooh, those are great. I hope everybody managed to write those down. That's very exciting. I love... Um, I love to, of course, we both love to explore women writing horror and, you know, just non cisgendered hetero peeps <laughs> writing yeah. horror as well. So much to say in horror and so much, yeah, yeah a reflection in your society and, and how you view it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I really love about horror right now is this push for more diversity has been so great for this genre. Um, I, 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 find it so frustrating that people think of horror as a boys club when Ugh. I'm like, dude, there are so many women writing. I mean, the the earliest, most read horror novel is probably Frankenstein and that's mm-hmm. Mary Shelley, you know? Yeah. And I think, and I really think it's not hard to agree that two of probably the landmark horror novels of the 20th century were Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House and Toni Morrison's Beloved. Yes. And those books are really, you know, stake out a lot of turf for horror. And um, they're written by women. You know, Stephen King was huge in the 80s, but the other two blockbuster authors were Anne Rice and V.C. Andrews writing horror. So it's, and but I really, but there there weren't a lot of BIPOC uh, writers. Mm. And um, that's really, you know, a bummer. And so I love seeing this sort of like push for diversity because I've heard a lot of stories that white guys are going to tell me and I want to know stories. I want to know what a, a a Blackfoot Indian werewolf story sounds like. I want to know what an Asian Islander uh, witchcraft story is. I want to hear these stories that I haven't heard before because they're new. And that's all I want is something I haven't heard before. Oh, I agree. And I would like um, both of those you mentioned, too. Like, if uh, I, I will throw all the money behind those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Well, you know, Stephen Graham Jones, who is Blackfoot, did write Mongrels, which is a werewolf book, which is phenomenal. We love his books. We love them. Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Um, really quickly, too, I wanted to congratulate you on getting into film yourself. Um, oh, thanks. Mohawk is fantastic. Um, so that's, that's really cool. I wanted to make sure that people know, um, hi, Greedy Hendrix does, does film now. 
Yes, uh, I did Mohawk and Satanic Panic with my friend Ted Gagan, um, and uh, and I'm right now I'm I'm you know working on the horror store screenplay for ah. some producers. So yeah, so it's uh, it's good because you know the thing about working in film that's really nice is it's unionized, uh, and so and it also pays nicely. And so like I was recently mm. able to do, and I know it's crazy when authors come on and they brag about their money, and you know <laughs> I was able to do an incredibly, incredibly extravagant thing for myself, uh, which, you know, not a lot of authors get to do, but I was able to get health insurance. And so that was, you know, like, whoa. Yeah. uh, Mind-blowing. So thanks, movies. (laughs) Thanks, movies, for doing what you do. Um, I think that's really cool, and it kind of is like – I don't know. It just it feels it feels right to me that you're like full circle and got your got your toes in a lot of different things in horror. It's um it's really cool to see someone who I feel like is one of us who is a fan and oh. is a scholar of it. Get you know he made it. <laughs> well, you know, I gotta say, like I, I always find these sub genres. You know, like when I did, we sold our souls. I I really. Trump jumped into this the sort of heavy metal community and the metalheads and 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 horror when I was started writing horror really like dove into the community and both of them are such welcoming big-hearted groups like I can't tell you how kind metalheads are mm. they are so welcoming and they so are they want you to listen to this band and I was great I wanted to know what the bands were I should be listening to so like I have so many lists written down for metalheads at like bars and stuff they get yeah. progressively less legible but like you, know, you gotta listen to this <laughs> and horror fans are the same way and they're so incredibly supportive like it's just it's just Nice. It's really, really nice. I was just doing this thing, um, this tweet along with uh, watching uh, Slumber Party Massacre 1 and 2 on Shudder and sort of doing a tweet along with a bunch of folks uh, this past Saturday. And we're doing another one this coming Saturday. If anyone's interested, the hashtag is Stabby Saturdays. Um, And uh, but it was so much fun. I mean, tons and tons of people were participating. And some of the funniest comments, some of the smartest comments, some it was just such a nice spirit of community. Yeah. And it's it was just really it reminded me of why horror fans are like, you know, probably and it's just my opinion, but probably the greatest people on the planet Earth and everyone else can go suck an egg. I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I concur. Well and sci-fi fans are okay too. <laughs> yeah, we're 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 all right. We're all right. We just have we have a few more problematic authors is all. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, so speaking of Twitter, uh, Grady, where can our listeners find you if they're not already following you across the internet? They can, yeah, the best place to go to either find me or avoid me is gradyhendrix.com. <laughs> It's got links to all my dumb social media stuff, and I'm pretty active on Twitter, but it's also got all my events I'm doing coming up, some are virtual, some are live. Um, it's got info on all my books. I review new paperbacks from hell all the time and put them up there. So honestly, like, if you're not sick of me yet, by the time you're done reading that website, you will be. <laughs> <laughs> well, perfect. And if you ever come to Northern California, we'll be very offended if you don't come sleep on our giant couch. So... The offer yeah, stands. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. Where, where where are y'all in Northern California? We're in Sonoma County. Okay. So North Bay Area. Isn't that where 
isn't that where Sydney Prescott goes to college and scream too? Yes, Isn't it and in high school. California? Yeah, and yeah, high school, yes. Exactly. Her school Wait, her was Mike school's... Media Center in yeah. Sonoma. Yeah. No, really? Oh yes. I've been Wait. to the locations many times. Um Sydney's kind of a kind of a goddess to me. I'm a huge scream fan. Yeah, before before I got Adrian King, who's the you know, the final girl in Friday thirteenth one, yeah. to do the audiobook for Final Girls, yes. we really, really wanted to get Nev Campbell, and we ah, were trying to make that happen. Next time, next time. But Adrian, uh, that also great. <laughs> There's, yeah, it was it was nuts. She was she's been phenomenally nice to work with. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And and one other fun little fact: we got married at the cruise, the production crew's favorite uh, restaurant for Scream. For Scream, yeah. <gasps> Uh, Kabianka. They actually thank them at the end of the credits. In Scream. In Scream. Oh, no way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I so, love that. You know, it's like, I love production stuff like that. Like, someone recently told me that when Stephen King was shooting Maximum Overdrive down in North Carolina at yeah. the De Laurentiis Studios, David Lynch was simultaneously making Blue Velvet. <gasps> And that the crews would hang out together and that actually at one point King rented a theater and screened Night of the Living Dead for the cast and crew of both movies. Stop and I'm it. like, that is such an amazing story. Ah, oh, that's why really couldn't cool. I like, be there? I know. Or that like Lucio Fulci shot City of the Living Dead in Savannah, Georgia in like, I think the late 70s, early 80s. Right. Like, what the hell did Georgia, Savannah, which is a tiny little town, what did they make of all these Italians showing up and blowing these like, you know, <laughs> banks of dust down the street and these zombies walking around barfing their guts? Like, yeah. what were people thinking? Like, I am one, you know, heavens to Betsy, what are these Italians doing? <laughs> There's a lot of pearl clutching. A lot of pearl Yeah, clutching. exactly. Oh, <laughs> something for the for the Southern Vampire uh, book book clubs to to talk about, to, I to guess. Swoon over, yeah. The vapors over. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We had such a great time talking to you oh, and dude. talking about your book. Thank you. No, it was really nice to talk to you guys. Thanks so much for doing this. Okay, welcome back. Consider yourself warned. Spoilers ahead. On every level. <laughs> Spoilers ahead. Um, isn't Grady Hendrix a lot of fun, though? He's a lot of fun. I love all of our authors. Yes. Love all of our authors. But every time we do an interview, I say that's the best interview that uh, like, that an author's ever given. I know. We, we just keep <laughs> saying that every, every, every single time. Um, so excited to hopefully get to meet him in person. I'd love to hear him speak. Um, I can just imagine kind of the way he talked about um the way he does appearances it reminds me of joe hill where it's like yeah it's about q a and it's about all of that but at the same time it's putting together a presentation and a show for the people it's a performance yeah and um that just makes me like not that that's a requirement but i think if you can you should <laughs> that's a great i i just really would look forward to hearing him you know kind of give a, a talk if you will so thank you grady you're um you're a gem. You're a good egg. Okay, let's get into it. Now, this is what happens in the words of the book. After the memorial shrub has been planted, the moments of silence are done. Um, people's 15 minutes of fame are up. The franchise is folded. <laughs> this is where we are. We're in a basement in a church in LA <laughs> with cotton ball sheep that say Jesus loves you. 
<laughs> and very skinny ghosts rising from the grave proclaiming ghosts are scary, but not the Holy Ghost. Oh my God. <laughs> Just wonderful examples of, of Grady's humor. I, I kind of want to talk about the, the group setting itself because I have... Um, I've not only been a part of group therapy, but um, I've had family members who are part of group therapy. Yeah, and that dynamic of of starting with a a um, a shared experience or, or a shared I mean, yeah, a shared experience and creating almost a a friendship and a kinship from that, mm-hmm. but but over time it falling apart because. I mean, everybody is very different. Yeah. You know, there's one thing that they all share and it's very powerful yeah. and it is very, it is very bonding. Yeah. But they're also very different people coming from different walks of life. And there's tensions just like in a family that start to develop and things start to break apart. And I really, I really uh, uh, felt that because I've experienced that and I've seen that happen. Yeah, I um I I'm picking up what you're laying down. Any of my group therapy sessions I've been a part of have not been as long running and as deep as this one. So I can't say I um I exactly relate from my own experience, but you can see how this would all come together. And you can see how the group has become stagnant. And there's something I really love about this. You know, we're, we're following Lynette, who in her way is an unreliable narrator, right? Because we're just getting her side of things. And then as the book unfolds, especially towards the end, and we're meeting other people in the group who are like, Lynette, you don't know how to move on. Yeah. And, you know, we're kind of seeing like, wow, we were kind of at this point place of thinking Lynette was right and they were wrong and now we're seeing that like well maybe (laughs) maybe Lynette does need to evolve a little bit here because a lot because a lot of them are presented you know originally by Lynette as you know not of not having adjusted very well and she's like oh you know we still have the group for this person or that person and as you start to really get to know them later on I mean no one is 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 completely well adjusted but yeah. you know everyone else has found some sort of peace and have been able to move on in some coping sort of way. In a way. Yeah, a coping mechanism. Yeah. And sometimes it's unhealthy, like Heather <laughs> and the drugs. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, we have like Danny, who's gotten married to the love of her life and has her ranch and works with law enforcement and, you know, kind of was like, has kind of carved out a niche. Yeah. And poor Lynette, no niche. No, she's just, she's locked herself up from the world ever since the events have happened. Um, And her best friend is a pepper plant. Fine. Who? Your favorite character. My favorite character. I knew immediately. Favorite character. Oh my God. I can absolutely see that. It all, I mean. Super emotional. And Fine has a journey that reflects her journey. I know. I mean, and. It it gives a really great excuse for Grady to have a little bit of an internal monologue at times. Yes. The way that the way that uh, Fine quote unquote talks to her, um, and of course I absolutely cried when she Fine. Well, when she, I mean, I cried when she left him. Yeah. Um, you know, and he was scattered across the ground, but I 
I cried at the end when he was planted in the garden. Marilyn he's says it perfectly. Marilyn says it perfectly right here. He was all cooped up in that pot, Marilyn says. There was no room for him to grow. I mean, his poor little roots were traumatized. I hope I did all right. And I mean, it's it's exactly, I mean, it is, it is her. It is Lynette. It, you know, scared, traumatized, locked in. And then it's like, you know, if you just allow yourself a little room to breathe and a little room to live, you can actually thrive. Now finds a big, happy shrub uh, living where fine needs to be. Instead of being cloistered and locked down and held prisoner. He has a place to put down roots, but also spread out and grow. It's perfect. It's a beautiful, beautiful allegory for Lynette because it's simple. It's something that even um, a kindergartner understands. (laughs) So that means adults... (laughs) should have no problems understanding right like sometimes just the simplest analogies and the simplest ways are best um let's talk about each character a little bit because that's just kind of the fun of this whole thing so um of course we have lynette who is kind of um our survivor from various christmas themed (laughs) um slashers she kind of you know has her own thing and also this kind of you know brother coming back for revenge thing that we see so that's Lynette um who's trying to always stay ready so she doesn't have to be ready but she's not living life (laughs) and every plan that she comes up with fails yeah everything everything um we have Adrian who was our first um Adrian is black but understands that for the franchise um she had to be white there's a lot to unpack there the power that she took in taking over that franchise was just so satisfying oh yes um so we we get to know her but at the same time we get we don't get to know her as being an active character in the book because she (laughs) dies almost immediately but um she's strongest and she really is the best of them she's like the best of them and um has done so much with her fame and the horrible things she went through to now help others um including was very much a lifeline for Lynette. Um, And it makes you sad that you didn't get to know her more actively, but um, she's very much a presence in the book. Something else. And she's our Friday the 13th camp, summer camp massacre girl. There's a a really neat um, parallel uh, between the way that that, she is presented as other characters see her in a little bit of a of, of an inspirational uh perfect light right and the way that Lynette uh originally has thought about her family you know right brushing over the rough edges um that that allows that character they need someone in their lives who is the model yes and it doesn't matter that I'm sure Adrian had plenty of other other issues right but in this in the in the framing of this story it's important that they had a model that they had a you know someone to look up to really someone who brought brings them together right 
Um, no, I think that's really important. There's somebody who has to be kind of the den mother. That has to be the, the you know, consummate big sister. Um, so next we have Danny, who is our Lori Strode, <laughs> our Halloween survivor. Um, oh, Adrian, by the way, that is the name of the actress who's the final girl in the Friday the 13th franchise. So Danny, um, I took Danny to be a play on Danny McBride, who is, of course, you know, been taking the helm of the latest Halloween um kind of resurgence oh that's how i took that um so danny is wonderful um danny is um a gay woman um she has a wife she has a beautiful ranch she has her flowers oh my god i cried um oh i cried there's this great thing about danny who again is like that kind of nurturer and i was very touched by the fact that Danny's weakness is her wife is her love for her yeah. wife and, and in a good way right because like that's how like that partner should be when the gals busted her out even though it didn't all go as planned i was still so happy that they tried that that was significant the most thr- thrilling but it but um happiest scene in the book for me just like this is this is something we have to do for her yeah after all that she's done for us and after all she's been through she you know their family deserves this um (laughs) all of the part with busting her out was some of heather's funniest goddamn moments too (laughs) so poor heather of course um heather lincoln we could say the actress who played Nancy in the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. This is her franchise. And I think this was the hardest for Grady to tackle <laughs> because this is kind of where we start bleeding into supernatural territory. Yep. Um, which in that way, it makes sense then that, <laughs> that <laughs> um, poor Heather has turned rather strongly to drugs. Uh, it's almost like this, Okay, if going into an ap- an absolutely supernatural person that wants to kill kids world, uh, maybe you do come out with a drug addiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, because damn. And I love how kind of little we know about the is it the prince of nightmares? The king the king of nightmares, king the of nightmare nightmares? king, the dream king. Dream, dream king. king. Um <laughs> we know from Chrissy's museum that once you see it you kind of break a little. Yeah. I, I thought that Grady handled that so smartly. Like there was a uh, not supernatural explanation that yeah. at least is the official story. And then you do have the person who has um, not the best, uh, not coming from the best place of mental health uh, saying, Oh no, there's definitely more to the story. And just, just that, that, that like, you know, she can't really believe or even grasp what she's seeing, but yeah. understands that there's there's things to this that he- that that Heather has never really told. No, because it and it maybe because it's too unbelievable or something the human mind can't can't fathom. I don't know. It's something I thought that was such a smart way to handle it. Um, and then, of course, I love this twist that Heather has. A little bit of a supernatural kind of bent to her as well. Yeah. Like, that's so funny when um, 
she like goes to take a nap and it's and they're all like annoyed with her and i knew i was like no she has to like she has to go into like a dream state you know she has to to be able to do this so i thought that was really funny and she is annoying and makes me mad but she also just oh my god she made me laugh so many times so many times so um we have my favorite which is marilyn um Mm -hmm named for Marilyn Burns, who was the final girl in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, I loved that the Gunners were the family, uh, Gunner Hansen, who played Leatherface. Never got to meet him, by all accounts, a wonderful human being. Um, Latinx person, character, woman, who um, I love that dimension, like Grady talked about. Um, I love that she's kind of coped and hidden behind this... (sighs) kind of glamorous persona um i think that's a very interesting way to take that character and very funny too because it's very kind of opposite of what um what her story is right and you know having it go that just completely opposite direction for her life is you know inspired i love that she's become an animal rights activist and plant-based diet person i i feel that on so many levels um talked about it before on the cult show toby hooper became a vegetarian after doing texas chainsaw massacre and it just kind of is like another little yeah that fits (laughs) that works no fits uh we have julia who um is now mobility challenged who uses a wheelchair which love that love 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 any sort of representation for people who have different mobility issues i'm a huge fan of that and um they are our uh our scream, our Sydney Prescott, our meta, our nineties meta. <laughs> She's girl. the new one to the group. Yeah. And I appreciate, you know, not only that there is representation and shows just how much she can do, um, which is everything. Yeah. Uh, but also that reality of, you know, maybe if you went through all that, you wouldn't just come out the other side just totally like you were uh i would hope not actually um (laughs) that you wouldn't and even though she gets a little annoying and self-righteous to the group she's become an advocate um she's become an activist and um very kind of loud yeah no there's some great scenes like when they're at like the summer camp where she's like get the fuck out of my way (laughs) in, in her chair you know and um we love to see it because, again, I think it makes sense for a, the 90s final girl to to take that social justice route. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It really fits for me. Um, <laughs> so then we have Chrissy. Is it Chrissy or Christy? I think it's it's Chrissy. Chrissy, which um, my thing immediately went to Christy, which is our final girl in Hellraiser. I don't know if that's it, but that was where I took it. Um, (laughs) I mean, it doesn't match with who her monster is. No, which is... um, So her monster, her story is kind of that prom night, that dance, (laughs) that high school dance, high school prom. And there's the familial connection in there. Same thing with um, Danny's story. There's that familial tie or not or something. (laughs) Something. But yes, she has fallen in love with her monster. Yeah. And um, see, like you had mentioned that like Chrissy's monster can't like feel pain, but that kind of like 
in a weird way that ties into like Hellraiser because they love Cenobites love pain. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. So it's we're we're killing a lot of birds with a lot of stones here. It's all so good. And there's more. There's more layers and there's more Easter eggs to all of this. I'm just kind of like just going with the first things that jumped out to me. Um so poor Chrissy. She ooh she's taking we don't like a to, different approach. Yeah, we don't like to throw this word around too much, but Chrissy has gone a little um slasher crazy right so she has instead taken this to a spiritual journey level of like if this had to happen and then she's kind of obsessed with making lynette a quote-unquote real final girl and she has her museum and she has her husband slash guard dog who is not a well man (laughs) um I think it was really smart and exciting to make one of their group defect like this and to kind of have this like really unsavory journey. I mean, the way that she's giving voices to the monsters who are in jail uh, is abhorrent. And the, you know, you and I are both collectors of things and we (laughs) we have our own collections and, I think you and I both kind of understand the desire to have something that is rare and unique and uh, has uh, has significance and a story to it. Yes. But there is... The murderabilia, that's a whole thing. And that's something I have not actively participated, but I have dipped a toe in as an observer. And um, I think that was also... An interesting thing for Grady to bring up in this book. Yeah, I I think it's it's kind of icky, right? It's even uncomfortable. Though I, even though I understand it, like yeah. I understand it, and yeah. I'm not necessarily putting judgment on it because same. There's a part of me that gets it. Yeah, but it's icky. There is an ickiness, and there is something exploitative. And and then I think it makes it easier to pass judgment when it's Chrissy who should be so on their side and so just like, you know, she was a part of them. She was a part of the group and she completely uh, betrayed them all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, an inevitable, horrid betrayal. Um, great, great death for her and her weirdo husband to yes. crash that car. I was not expecting Lynette to go back. Nope. But she grows. Lynette grows she in this story. Grow. She evolves a lot. Um, she makes up for some of her past, quote unquote, indiscretions by even though um, her little protege turns out to not be a healthy person, um, she makes up for her sister for not being not able to save, save her. Which, I mean, the guilt, too harsh the, the on guilt exactly, yeah. the guilt that she holds for that is, is, uh, is not warranted. Like she, yeah. she was skewered on the antler of a deer on the wall. And she wouldn't have been able to save her sister, but no, I mean, she, yes, she could have sacrificed herself. Yes. And maybe her sister would have gotten away. Maybe her sister would have been the final girl. And this is a lot of, it's a lot of what ifs and it's a lot of maybes. And it's something that the outsider, we totally understand. And then for the person who's inside it, they're like racked with this guilt. And really that's part of what's been holding her 
all this time. And then the fact that she was pen pals with the killer, you know, which is, again, not her fault. Like, these are other people's actions. These these men who did bad things, you can't victim blame, like, yourself or any of your final girl sisters. This is on them, them making bad, poor decisions. Someone I kind of want to talk about is uh, Sheriff Garrett P. Cannon. <laughs> oh my gosh, somewhat a great, a great character. Great character builds off of a of you know a very famous type of archetype when it comes to these films. Uh, this is not how he's described, but I kept I was picturing uh, Vinny. Uh, uh, Vincent Gustafero. Yes, we know uh, Vinny. From, yeah, from you, you interviewed him on Spoo- on a cult on show. the cult show, and he was in uh he was in Friday the Thirteenth Part Six as yeah. the sheriff. He was the deputy. Deputy. Uh, the deputy. Yeah. yeah, and he's just kind of like you know he's not really super conf- competent. No, but I could absolutely see him after all of that happens, like thinking he's like this super competent. You know detective and cop and full of himself i got this done Vinny would be perfect for the film adaptation yes. of this yeah and that archetype comes up in friday 13th movies and other movies too where it's like this kind of swaggery cowboy who's like you know kind of acts like i don't know there's some sort of a criminal minds genius guy but really <sighs> They're just kind of clout chasing. They're kind of like riding off of their final girl's coattails a yeah. little bit. Yeah. And he really screwed over Lynette. Like, he did. But at the same time, it was really nice that he st- actually had faith in her too. Oh, yeah. No, he he kind of came back around at the end. But I just mean like really kind of leaving her high and dry when she was young and yes. vulnerable. And, and yeah. very much took advantage of her and her, her you know in her very fragile state. Yeah. Not cool. Um, and of course he's got some really funny lines and especially kind of the last time we see him is pretty funny too. Um, where she's like, yeah, I lied. <laughs> I lied, Garrett. <laughs> I needed you. I used you this time. <laughs> um, so did you see sky and Stephanie unfolding? Well, I'm glad that you asked because I think one of the, one of the most fun things that he did in this book is the way that he wrote the twist. I was sure it was Dr. Carol. Same. For a very long time. And I was like, you're guilty bitch. And she was, but he, and he did it in a really smart way where it didn't feel like a red herring because he didn't hint to it very heavily at all until she realized when she was talking to her in the prison is like oh oh this is performative it's her yes and and i had already thought it was her long before that so it didn't feel red herring right um that said when we were first introduced to sky right and he was asking some kind of creepy questions right i definitely had a i was picking up some pretty sketch vibes yeah yeah <laughs> My um my senses were tingling with um Pax, the little brother, being so insistent on the comic book. Yeah. I was like, I, I mean, I I was fingering Dr. Carroll for it all. So I was like, oh, it's all going to be revealed in those pages. It's all real in those pages. And it turns out it's really, really Sky that's the nefarious one. Um, Sky, who yet again kind of shows us this thing with um, um a man manipulating a woman and yeah. kind of working her. Uh, to get what he wants 
and um, her kind of for all of the right wrong reasons it's the perfect storm of her kind of falling uh, under his thrall and it's you know we've seen it we'll see it again um, and that's not to say that on her own she isn't an unbalanced unhealthy person but it's that same sort of like <sighs> she gets played you know yeah. And then Stephanie, he takes a completely opposite tack with. Yes. It was very, very blatant and clear, the hints that were put out there for Stephanie. Right. Where it was like, um, I knew, like, once he decides, once he decided that you as the reader should know, um, which I think was about the point when she was like texting in the back seat. Yeah. And she's stepping off to the side and making the phone call. Um, basically after the events of Chrissy, there's the, he made it very clear to the reader. Yeah. Um, and trusted the reader to pick up all of the very blatant clues of, oh, I know what's going on. Yeah. I'm supposed to know what's going on without being blatantly told what's going on. Right. But she doesn't. Yeah. And I thought that was really fun. Like, oh my God, like, how is she being so dumb about this right now? Like, it's so obvious. Right. Like, all of a sudden, she knows how to use the 22. All of a sudden, she's like really competent. She knows where everybody is. And she knows all this stuff about all these different characters. She wanted to trust her. She wanted to, she adopted her as her little sister and wanted to make that right. And you get kind of um, blind to people's flaws when you're trying to be kind of self-righteous and self-serving a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, it was great. Great use of, of that character. But I, I love the trust that Grady put in the reader when it yes. came to all of those hints, because it would be really easy to have like a, a scene where you where you know, somehow you really show, but since this book is written in only Lynette's perspective, right? Doing it through these context clues and blatant hints was really, really smart and fun. So, um, so I really want to touch on something I've hinted at, which is the kind of messaging of this book, the heart, the um, the uplifting spirit, the positive messages that I took out of this, because there's a lot. <laughs> um, it starts, you know, towards the end of the book, we start to see Lynette's attitude change. There's a quote that I love. Maybe this is what makes a life. Responsibilities, obligations, who we tie ourselves to. Maybe that's what I've been missing. Mm. And I think that's that's very significant. And from there, we kind of get a lot more quotes about about life in general. Um, Adrian was right. There's more to life than staying alive. Um, and she, you know, she kind of then points out with Stephanie and Skye, let her live, let her and Skye live. Uh, Let them live and just see how small and meaningless their murders were. Um, Dying isn't the important thing. It's nothing more than the punctuation mark on the end of your life. Perfect. It's perfect. 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 Um, And now we kind of know more about what Grady was kind of going through and rewriting parts of the end of this book mm-hmm. um even though he had like he said those final like paragraphs like he already knew what they were going to be um i have to imagine this is a big part of it there's so much life and it just keeps going maybe not everyone's life but life it doesn't stop for anyone and that's life with a capital l and that was something the type of thought that 
um, got me through some of the struggles with the pandemic, and it's still going on. But, um, you know, compared to a lot of people, you and I had uh, a fairly easy pandemic experience. Comparatively, certainly, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And part of what kind of kept me going through that is that life keeps going. We spent as much possible time as we could outside and in our garden and other places around when we could go. And you see bees and you see birds and you see flowers and you see all this stuff and it's like it's unconcerned. It's unconcerned with our day-to-day minutia and that's kind of like something can feel like the end of the world for you, but it's not actually the end of the world. Yeah. Life finds a way. <laughs> Life moves on. The end of the world is not actually the end of the world. No. Well, time to give this our final John or Junkie score. Yeah, I guess we should. Um, I goes without saying, I give this book five out of five final girls. The whole support group. Bring them down. The whole support group survives. Five out of five final girls for myself as well. Final girls are strong. They're badass. They're the girls that keep going. And it's an important message and it's an important way to be and it's an important way to live your life. That's all I have to say about that. Thank you, Grady Hendricks, for being on our show. It was absolutely our pleasure and an honor. And ah, what an excellent, excellent book written by an excellent, excellent person. Thank you, Grady Hendricks, for being on our show. It was absolutely your pleasure. And we are absolutely wonderful people. Okay, everybody, this is Sandra. This is Scott. Please keep reading past your bedtime. (laughs) 